Welcome to the podcast of Sozo Church. For more information about Sozo, please visit sozosmtx.com. Thank you for taking time to be here this morning. I think it is worthwhile to celebrate all that Jesus done and all that he is. If you're a visitor, if this is your first time first, I just want to say thank you. It's an honor that you would choose to spend this morning in particular with us. Uh, We would love to know that you're here, have the chance to follow up with you. It's pretty simple. You just text hello uh, to that number on the screen behind me, and uh, and we would love to follow up with you uh, and get you a little more info about our church family. Well, uh, I'd love to pray, and then we're going to jump right in. Jesus, we love you. We welcome you here, Holy Spirit. We thank you, God, that you are real and that you love to make yourself known to us. And so, Lord, we pray that for each one of us that we would leave here knowing you better. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the most valuable journey that one could ever make is not to the Holy Lands, not to the top of Mount Everest or to your homelands. The most valuable journey that we could ever make is the 18 inches from your head to your heart. Many of us could probably identify with the words of this father who was bringing his son to Jesus, his demonized son. And he says, I believe, help my unbelief. And a lot of times we find ourselves stuck in our heads and and it seems as if belief can't quite make it to our hearts. This morning, I I wanna talk a little bit about that journey and invite you to be on that journey as well. I wanna share a little bit of a story from the resurrection, we'll read that in scripture in Luke 24. Uh, and then I'll share a little bit of my story and some things that I discovered on the journey of, of realizing this, that my head actually doesn't have to get in the way of my heart. That there are some things that you can know in your head that can facilitate the journey of faith, of belief into your heart. You see, I, I, I thought as a young man that I, I had to, to put really what I would say is, is faith, but I, but I had to believe in this mythical idea of, of this person that lived 2,000 years ago and believe that all of this was real without any sort of evidence that it was. When I was 20 years old, I started doing some research and I, and I found this. I had already put my heart belief in Jesus, but I actually found that there was enough evidence that my head didn't have to get in the way. Now, let me say this. I don't think that you can argue somebody into relationship with Jesus. That's something that happens in the heart. At the same time, I think many of us have been made to believe that you could never get there with your head. And so I want to read this story out of Luke 24, and we'll talk a, a little bit about that journey. Start in verse 13. It says, later that same day, 
This is the day of the resurrection. Two of Jesus' disciples were walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, a journey of about 17 miles, a little over a half marathon. They were in the midst of a discussion about the events of the last few days when Jesus walked up and accompanied them in their journey. They were unaware that it was actually Jesus walking alongside them, for God had prevented them from recognizing him. Jesus said to them, you seem to be in a deep discussion about something. What are you talking about? So sad and gloomy. They stopped, and the one named Cleopas answered, haven't you heard? Are you the only one in Jerusalem unaware of the things that have happened over the last few days? Jesus asked, what things? The things about Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they replied. He was a mighty prophet of God who performed miracles and wonders. His words were powerful, and he had great favor with God and the people. But three days ago, the high priest and the rulers of the people sentenced him to death and had him crucified. We had all hoped that he was the one who would redeem and rescue Israel. Early this morning, some of the women informed us of something amazing. They said they went to the tomb and found it empty. That's a good amen right there. They found it empty. They claimed two angels appeared and told them that Jesus is now alive. Some of us went to see for ourselves and found the tomb exactly as the woman had said. No one else had seen him. Jesus said to them, why are you so thick-headed? <laughs> you ever felt like that? Maybe Jesus is saying that to you. Why are you so thick-headed? I love what one translation says. It says, why are you so thick-headed and slow-hearted? Why do you find it hard to believe every word the prophets have spoken? Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to experience all these sufferings and afterward enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he carefully unveiled to them the revelation of himself throughout the scriptures. As they approached the village, Jesus walked on ahead, telling them he was going on to a distant place. They urged him to remain there with them and pleaded, stay with us. It will be dark soon. So Jesus went in, uh, went with them into the village. Joining them at the table for supper, he broke bread and blessed it, and he broke it and, and gave it to them. All at once, their eyes were opened, and they realized he was Jesus. Then suddenly, in a flash, Jesus vanished before their eyes. Stunned, they looked at each other and said, why didn't we recognize him? Catch this next line. Didn't our hearts burn with flames of holy passion? While, he walked beside, while we walked beside him, he unveiled such profound revelation from scriptures. Here's their response. They left at once and hurried back to Jerusalem to tell the other disciples. When they found the 11 and the other disciples all together, they overheard them saying, it's really true. The Lord has risen from the dead. He even appeared to Peter. The two disciples told the others what had happened to them on the road to Emmaus and how Jesus had unveiled himself in the breaking of bread. Did not our hearts burn within us with holy passion? Have you ever experienced that where it's like, man, I, I don't even know what my head is saying, but my heart is burning with holy passion. Thomas wanted that same experience. He 
As, as you would read on, he was not with the disciples. He was missing when Jesus came to them in the upper room. And so he said, you know what, guys? I'm not going to believe you unless I can touch him. It's like maybe, maybe you saw a ghost or a vision, or maybe you're just delusional from all of the traumatic events of the last few days and the great disappointment. He said, I'm not going to believe unless I can touch him, unless I can put my hands in the hole, my fingers in the holes of his hands, unless I can touch that hole in his side. I'm not going to believe that it's Jesus. Jesus then shows up to Thomas. And he says something pretty interesting to him. He says, basically, you're blessed that you get to see me, but how much more blessed are those who believe and have not seen? You see, I think if we were to be honest, many of us, probably like Thomas, probably like that man who brought his son to Jesus, I believe helped my unbelief, our heads can get in the way of our hearts. But what we really want, the place of belief that really happens is in our hearts. What Romans 10, 9 says, it says that if we believe in our hearts, not in our heads, if we believe in our hearts that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. The word saved is interesting and powerful. It's actually the name of our church. It's, it's not just that you get your ticket to heaven. It's the word sozo, that you would be healed, restored, delivered, made whole. You see, the, the gospel is not simply the good news about the afterlife, but it's the good news of God's presence here with us, making all things new now. We're not waiting on a future resurrection. We get to participate in the resurrection even now. His life inside of us. But oftentimes it seems as if we get stuck in our heads. And you see, for some, you get stuck in your heads thinking, man, this doesn't intellectually, academically seem to make sense to me. And it is absolutely abnormal that people rise from the dead. For others, we get stuck in our heads, and that getting stuck in our heads is not so much around the idea that Jesus lived, that he died, that he resurrected, that he ascended, but we get stuck in our heads thinking that belief happens here instead of here. And so what happens is we find ourselves stuck in the ruts of religion and that faith never makes it those 18 inches down to our hearts. Let me say that I believe this morning God wants to make himself real to you, not simply in your head, but also in your heart. What I found nearly 20 years ago in my journey is that I told you a few minutes ago that I, I felt like, man, I just have to believe in this mythical idea that I heard from my parents and my Sunday school teachers about this man that was God that lived 2,000 years ago. And then I did some research, and I found a few things that I think that you'll find interesting. One of the first questions that many people would ask, well, was Jesus even a real person, right? Like, did he really live? You know that there is actually more evidence that Jesus existed in the first century than there is that Julius Caesar did. And it's not simply evidence in the Bible. It's not simply 
evidence in Christian history or religious history. It's a historical fact that Jesus was a real person who really lived, who really walked the earth. And so it seems that so many of us get stuck. Well, maybe this is just myth. We get stuck in our heads. But I want to tell you, if you were to dig into history, what you would find is that Jesus really did live in the first century. The second thing, valuable question is, was he crucified, right? Like maybe he lived and maybe he was a good teacher and, and maybe he even did some miracles, but, but was he crucified? You know that his crucifixion is incredibly well documented. No credible historian could make a serious claim that the crucifixion and death of Jesus was just a story, was just a myth. And the Romans, by the way, were experts in torturous death by crucifixion. They would not let Jesus survive. Many people think, well, well, maybe he just went into a coma. Maybe they didn't like kill him all the way. Maybe like Monty Python, he's just half dead. And so maybe they put him in a tomb and then he, he woke up from a coma. The Romans would not have let that happen. They were too good at what they did. The American Medical Journal reviewed the account of the crucifixion and even extra biblical accounts, and they concluded that by the time that spear would have gone into Jesus' side, that he would have been dead. Gerd Ludeman, a respected atheist scholar, has written that has written historically, it's indisputable that Jesus was dead after crucifixion. What he was saying is that Jesus existed and he was dead. So then the, the real question is, was he resurrected, right? Like every other great, great teacher in history is dead. Here's some problems, though. Jesus had promised that he was resurrected, and so either, or that he would resurrect, either he did and his teaching was good, or his teaching was delusional, Right? But it goes on to say this. It says, there is a, a creed that dates back to being within, the months, within months of the resurrection, claiming that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. Here's what that means. The idea of the resurrection is not a myth or a legend that developed maybe centuries later, but it's actually something that a, a belief that people were saying immediately after it happened. It's not a story that eventually unfolded And we know this, that the tomb was empty. Even the opponents of Jesus in the first century conclude that there was an empty tomb, which leads to the real question, what happened? We have at least nine written eyewitness accounts, including those outside the New Testament, confirming the claim that Jesus had, in fact, risen from the dead. The most compelling evidence, though, for the resurrection is in the lives of the disciples, Right, you've got, now Judas has has committed suicide. So you've got 11 disciples who are following Jesus. And at the point of his resurrection, all but one, John, have left. And they're all terrified. They're, They're not 
positioned well to make a great claim that would start a, change, a, a movement that would change the world. They're terrified. Courage is not their strong suit. And yet something happens within days that they get courage and have the faith enter them that would transform the world. Here are 11, what Acts 4 says, unschooled ordinary men who believed an idea to the extent that they would live the rest of their lives believing and proclaiming it. And then they would give, 10 of the 11 would be brutally killed based on that belief. It seems that if nothing had happened, maybe one or two people would die for a lie, but not all 11 and many more. Their lives are really a testimony that something happened, that Jesus had, in fact, risen from the dead. But I want to get you to the final point that I have, and then we're going to hear a couple stories. I believe this, that the most compelling evidence for the resurrection is not found in history books. It's found in the stories of transformed lives. Right? It's like, that's all great if it happened, but does it still happen? Does Jesus still enter into lives and bring resurrection life to hearts? And when we recognize that maybe it did, then we can realize that maybe I'm not stuck in my head, but my faith can move from my head to my heart. I'd like to invite my friend Tiara to come up and and to share a bit of her story with you. Would y'all welcome up Tiara? Just to preface, there is not enough time to say how much God has done in my life or to explain um, the transformation I've seen in myself because of him. But to start at the beginning, (laughs) in my childhood home, Jesus was someone to talk to before bed and had more of a role of a wish giver than a father, and that's if he was mentioned at all. My circumstances took the priority of my concerns, and I allowed them to shape my identity. My family was my mom, my grandma, and my brother, and I knew I had a dad somewhere, but he was in prison, so it was easier to say that I didn't have one. I grew up with my mom and her boyfriend, who was very authoritarian, and this resulted in many rules in our home. Sorry, forgive me if I get emotional. Um, A withholding of love based on the fear of accusation and the belief that kids were meant to follow adults blindly without much room to question And I realize now that that was a way to fuel emotional neglect and abuse in my home. My mom is my hero, and I know she's watching, so I love you, mom. (laughs) And the strongest woman I know. And I always knew that she loved me so much, yet we all fell victim to his demands and the oppression um, in our home. And although he was meant to play a fatherly role, I never really felt like I had a dad. My brother Mike, a chosen family in my apartments, and many coping mechanisms kept me distracted from what was my home life. These circumstances set the stage for residual effects, some that I never realized were there until I got saved. Um, But I took on victim as a part of my identity from a very early age. When I was in middle school, middle school, 
interesting time for everyone, let me tell you. <laughs> my pursuit of all things boys became the start of a long-lasting part of my identity. I realized that a boyfriend could temporarily fill a void I had in my heart. Placing my identity in being loved was another great distraction. My desire to be loved led me down the rabbit trail of sexuality and being in constant compromise for attention from friends and boys, really. Although there were many rules in our home, waiting until marriage to have sex was not of importance, and dating was really encouraged, especially for my brother by my mom's boyfriend. And sadly, like this desire for attention really put me in a lot of compromising and scary situations, which I'm really thankful that the Lord has redeemed um, now looking back. But there's hope. <laughs> my grandma um, encouraged me a lot to pray and she would talk to me about Jesus. Um, and she took me to this Sunday school at a Baptist church. And it was nice, but it was really scary because no one really liked me or I felt like they didn't. And so after I stopped attending that church at about eight, I did not attend a church again until I was about 15 years old. I went with a friend whose family attended church service on Sundays and they always took us to youth nights. And I gained more understanding of Jesus, but the weekly event was more about having fun with kids my age. I still lacked freedom in a relationship with Jesus. At the age of 17, I decided that God could not be real. And if he was, he wasn't all that good. This led me to place my identity in being agnostic and developing severe apathy for God. Although I laughed at him any other time, I prayed when I needed help and fell back on my foundation that he was more of a genie than a father that wanted to know me. Keep in mind, I was still an atheist at this point when I would call out to him. Isn't it amazing how our souls cry out to God every time we are in need? We were really created to be his children and need his help. Um, and I'm so grateful that he always came through. By the grace and unknown favor of God to guide my path when I was far from him, I made the Texas State Shredders dance team. <laughs> this was a part of many divine arrangements for me to witness how God was chasing after my heart. I was sad to move away from my hometown and I came to appreciate the freedom to start fresh and rewrite my story, I guess. <laughs> when I thought about my life to start in San Marcos, I saw blackness. I felt a lot of fear, but little did I know that it was black because I had no idea how truly amazing my life would be here. On Strutters, <laughs> this part, is, I'm gonna cry. <laughs> on Strutters, I met many amazing women, some of them who are here today, um, that helped me transition to a new city. My teammates, who eventually became dear friends, Abby Bender and Alex Paul. These women were the first people to show me how much God really loved me. Uh, <laughs> and they really showed me the pursuit and the patience of Jesus, like what he had for my heart. They emanated and still do Jesus inside and out. Although I was initially resentful of them, I realize now that that was the spirit of darkness in me that hated the spirit of light and truth in them. They became pastors of my heart to Jesus and co-labor with the ultimate pastor. They were dedicated to loving me through all the worldly decisions I made. And they always tried to answer the questions I had about who God really was. I'm so thankful that they saw what Jesus created in me before the world got its hands on me. I'm thankful that they were obedient to God to be patient in leading me to him. Over the course of my first year, my heart softened and I said yes to Jesus through a salvation prayer. Praise God. <laughs> I had no idea what this would do for my walk with Jesus. I started to try to pursue God more by reading some of my Bible and going to church. At this point, I was crying every time I stepped into church <laughs> and observing others worship, although I was still highly skeptical of the presence of God. Despite this effort, I was still engaging in hold habits. I struggled with addiction to relationship, 
lustful activities, drinking, and this created the biggest wedge between me and God in this season. I chose sin, my own desires, and the false identity I created over relationship with Jesus for a season. It is possible to know God and still choose compromise. I was pretty bitter that some people grew up in a home that was focused on Jesus while I was still having to relearn what was true about sin and about the world. Luckily, his word says that he will give us a new heart that is tender and responsive. (laughs) Over a year after I prayed that prayer to know Jesus more, I was in one of the lowest points of my life, both relationally and financially. In the moment of complete, the complete end of myself, I cried out to the Lord and the tangible presence of God came to me and I met Jesus for the first time. This was a year after, (laughs) y'all. So be patient if you're in this season. Um, I cried out to him and it felt like he fell on me personally and he was so comforting, gentle and present. Nothing like the father figure I always thought that he was. I tangibly felt a body holding me in this moment, y'all. It was so real, like I cannot even describe. He is so faithful to comfort us in the repercussions of our own actions. As soon as he came, my hysterics settled and the peace of the Lord came over me as well as the power of the Holy Spirit. My life was radically altered from this moment on, as Dustin says. (laughs) A true encounter with Jesus changes everything, literally everything. I promise I'm almost done. (laughs) I instantly started reading the New Testament and I felt joy and power of the Lord like I'd never done or I'd never felt before. I felt desire to pursue him and to know him. The next day I put down an addiction I had for 13 years and have not touched it since. About three days later, I ended the relationship I was in with a boy for over three years that I thought I could never live without. I said, I will never know God if it means I have to give up this boy. And I just broke up with him. I was like, I'm sorry, but I'm breaking up with you. (laughs) And when I attended Sozo after meeting Jesus, I felt what I had only witnessed others experience, a heart of complete praise, love, and undignified worship for the one who laid down everything for me. I was so incredibly joyful. From 2020 onward, I had the spirit to guide me into deeper relationship with the Father and a continual revelation of how much Jesus loves me to not only die for me, but to pursue me in lukewarmness leading up to this point of revival. It has been over a year, and I can honestly say that the fire my spirit has for my Redeemer is still blazing. I have been completely redeemed of my addiction, um, all, all of them. I've been healed of OCD and anxiety, and it's been so freeing. Um, and... I know now that those were just distractions to meet needs that can only be filled in Christ. I've been freed of the shame of my childhood. I no longer hold the title of victim because he promises to restore what was taken from us with interest. And I know I'm almost out of time, but I feel like this is so important to share. My dad has come to know the Lord in prison. And then, (laughs) yeah, um, and he encourages me and he, um, We've restored our relationship through Christ. And um, I've even seen my brother come to know Jesus through the fruit of me knowing Jesus. So there's hope, (laughs) y'all. I access the power to forgive and resist the hold of temptation that would normally lead me into sin. Although I'm not sinless, I know that I have a choice to choose and the power to choose rightly. Over the past year, I have rededicated to purity, which is a miracle considering it is the very thing that kept me from letting him be the Lord of my life previously. I've tasted and seen the gifts God is growing in me in the prophetic, a teacher in training of his word and a partner of his will in bringing heaven to earth. 
And most importantly, I'm learning to trust that he is a firm foundation and I'm grateful for the love story that he is writing of Jesus and Tierra. If I know nothing to be true in my life, I know that he is good. And I know that he is my redeemer. <laughs> he is the author and the perfecter of my faith and he has plans to prosper and restore me. And I can say that I know he wants that for you too. There we go. All right, awesome. Thank you. Incredible. That's evidence that Jesus is real. Hey, Mike, would you come on down? Would y'all give it up for Coach Mike? Autographs later, Mike. <laughs> well, that was awesome, and thank you uh, for sharing. Uh, I was baptized a few weeks ago, and uh, this is my first um, exposure to Sozo, so I don't think there's any way to go but down from here. So, uh, <laughs> quick rise, boom. So, um, I'll just start out by saying I, I don't have a, a need to perform uh, or impress. And um, yeah, there's no entertainment value here. Um, yeah, just going to share a little bit of my story. Uh, so I've, I've kind of learned that by the age of 10, I had developed some structures uh, in my brain and in my way of understanding. Um, and uh, also, I had developed a certain lens that I saw life through. And I began to figure out that I could manipulate and chart my life based on those structures and the lens that I was looking through. Uh, the problem with that was that, that both of those were inaccurate. Uh, from the beginning, and the bad news is you've done the same thing. And there's a good chance in a room this size that some of you are still possibly um, trapped inside yourself, I think is a way to say it. Um, I think I've spent the majority of my life trapped inside myself. I think that God puts who we're intended to be in us, and it's just hidden from us because of the way we see the world and the way the world uh, operates, and we learn quickly how to navigate that um, because the God of this age controls the operating systems that we all function inside of. And we learn pretty quick how to uh, use our education and our knowledge uh, to uh, navigate. And especially here in the West, uh, because that, that is kind of promoted as the be-all, end-all. I grew up in church, uh, walked down an aisle at 16, prayed a prayer, uh, was baptized, and quickly, quickly uh, went to work. And, and I want to emphasize, I went to work. Uh, I believed a couple of lies about God and myself, that uh, created some strongholds in my life very early on. 
Uh, I wasn't real sure that God was as good as some said, and I wasn't real sure that he loved me. Uh, I wanted him to, but I felt like it was based on my performance. Um, and so I, uh, God gave me an incredibly strong will, uh, very above average. Um, <laughs> that's why it took me so long to get to a place like this. Uh, and if you talk to my parents, they would amen that about a hundred times. Uh, very, very strong will, uh, very, very determined. But I also had a, a believe a lie that I wasn't quite good enough, that I wasn't smart enough or fast enough or big enough or good looking enough, all of it. Uh, and I believed it. And so I, 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 I went about trying to prove myself. And, and trying to uh, validate and um, defend uh, myself. And um, I learned how to do that. And I learned how to do it really well. Um, by the world standards, uh, had I chosen a different profession other than teaching and coaching, uh, I could probably plant four or five churches with the money that I would have made. Uh, in my profession, um, I went as high and as good as you can go. And just keep it there. Um, and had I been in the business world or the corporate world, whatever, uh, that would have been richly rewarded. And um, uh, thankfully, I didn't uh, choose that route. I'm, I'm glad I, I did what I did, but it was all about performance and proving and defending. And, and, um, and so what happened is I had a head knowledge of Jesus, and, and I knew a lot about him. And I, I could probably sit and talk with everybody in here, and, and you would think I was on, on level with you and, and um, maybe, maybe even ahead of you a little bit. I, I went to all the conferences. I, I taught Bible and Sunday school for over 20 years. I was a deacon. Um, but I, w I was dead. Uh, I'll just be real honest with you. I was dead inside. Everything uh, that came from me was my own energy, um, my own ability to motivate myself. Um, and I could do it. Um, and so I climbed over in the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I went up high in that tree. I found a good branch, and I, and I built a big treehouse. And I traded back and forth from the good branch and the, quote, bad branch. And, you know, it's obvious what the bad branch is. Uh, that's, that's the one where everybody that's on the good branch judges the ones that are on the bad branch. And the guys on the bad branch have had enough of the fake good branch. They don't care. And so their rebellion is at least honest. Uh, compliance, I think, is more dangerous than rebellion uh, because you wind up saying yes as if you're going along, but your heart's not. And uh, that's, that's dangerous because um, there's scripture that I used to read all the time, and I'm thinking, I think I'm, I think I'm that person, but I'm not going to let anybody know. And it goes like this. These, these people honor me with their lips. Um, but their hearts are far from me. And it was kind of like, you know, lights, camera, action. Uh, 
you know how to perform when you need to. And then when the lights are off, uh, you're, you're not that person you were in the lights. Um, and, and, and that was me. So I can only speak about my experience, but uh, that, that's what I did. And so um, I learned how to navigate the two branches really well, and I, I learned how to hide. Uh, because of the lies I believed, I, I created a way to self-protect and comfort. And, and for me, comfort was being successful. Uh, it was doing ministry. Uh, it was winning. Uh, it was taking the value that all Americans appreciate, success, which is an American value, uh, attaching it with some Christian language, i.e. church work, attendance, scripture, and making a go at it. And no one knew any different. Uh, I did. But everyone was applauding and everyone was happy and excited as long as I could keep performing and producing and uh, keeping up appearances is a nasty game. And so I, I kept doing that, but on the inside I was uh, deeply isolated and um, I don't have a real good word for it, but beyond lonely. Uh, but no one knew. Um, so I was protecting, I was protecting myself. I was hiding. And at the same time, wanting someone to know me desperately, but not wanting to let anyone get close enough to know me. I know I'm not speaking to anyone, but uh, I'm just telling my story for me to hear it. Um, I was desperately lonely, and I wanted someone to scratch deeper uh, beyond how to help them develop a winning program or how to help them with training. I wanted someone to know me like really know me. Uh, and I wanted, I wanted the dirt and the an inadequacies and uh, insecurities and the failures, um, the sin habits. I wanted somebody to know all of it and, and not reject me. Um... But I was afraid of the church. I was, I was afraid of the church. I was afraid of the, the judgment, the condemnation, um, the loss of reputation, all of it. Deeply afraid. Um, So I persisted, uh, strong will, until I got to a place where I basically, I think, uh, hit a wall. And I think I got pretty close to a breakdown, looking back on it, talking to my parents, uh, kind of debriefing, going through my whole life with my parents and, and a few close friends. I think I got pretty close to a complete breakdown. Um, 
I can remember people, talk, people talking about anxiety and I had no clue. I thought that, that, that's, that doesn't happen, you know. I've never had it, so it doesn't happen. Um, I was the type that denied what I felt. I denied things that weren't so great. I pretended they weren't there because I needed to help other people. So you don't deal with your own stuff. You help other people. And uh, that's, that's a real tricky situation for people in ministry or people in leadership. You deny your own needs to your own detriment sometimes. Uh, it'll kill you. Uh, so you're less than honest about the truth. And so I, I just had all this kind of swirling around. I was, you know, isolated, lonely, protecting myself. And it became obvious that something was amiss. And I think I knew it all along. It's just you don't want to, um, you don't want to, you don't want to, you don't want to admit it. Um, being truthful with yourself is probably the hardest uh, thing. To honestly call out what is true is difficult. Um, but for me, that was the only way forward. I needed to burn it all down uh, to to have a chance to to start new in a way. And so today, I'm not worried about you knowing the dirt. I'll, I'll share it with you if you want over a cup of coffee. I'm not worried about you knowing anything about the truth about me. Uh, if you look in there now, it, it, that's, it, there's, it's not there anymore. Uh, there, there's this uh, new person. Um, there's, there's this new thing. Um, so I... I I came to a freedom conference here back in October and there's this tall gray-headed guy about my age stands up here and starts talking about some things that really connected with me, made some sense to me and, and, and all of a sudden I felt like my brain was a pinball machine. The ball was bouncing around and everything was lighting up and I'm making these connections and I'm thinking, you know, where have I been <sighs> my whole life? Um, I, I tried really hard. Um, my, my effort was genuine. But I tried really hard to make this Christian thing work. And, and that, was, that was the problem. I tried. And what I came to realize is that um, the problem wasn't Mike misbehaving, which I always thought that that's what Christianity was about. You, you accept Jesus, and then you start behaving good. That's, that's what I was taught. That's what I heard. That's what I got. And when I heard the word repentance, I thought it meant stop that bad behavior. Uh, that's what I heard. And so I tried to stop all my bad behaviors, and I tried to behave. And I went to all the sin management courses and read all the books and got certifications and did the three-day weekends and went to the retreats and I could lead those things and no power no transformation uh, I had an appetite for sin even while in the church and I, I came to realize um, at Freedom Weekend especially that um, 
Jesus didn't come because Mike was misbehaving. Jesus came because Mike was the source of Mike. And because of that, Jesus wasn't allowed in, and that is sin. Even, even though I was over here on the good branch, more often than not, and I had a really good treehouse, I was doing it. And that's where it gets tricky. You can do it. And it looks good. And it sounds good. And it plays well. And people will pat you on the back and applaud you and cheer you on because they're doing the same thing. And yet, it's your strength that is living your life. And we're taught to do that in this culture. It's your life. You live it. And what I came to realize is that uh, I was really trying hard to be committed to Jesus, and I was really trying hard to follow Jesus because that's what I had heard as well. You do want to follow Jesus with your whole heart. That sounds really good, but do you hear how much of that is you doing it? I never heard that I needed to surrender and receive. Never heard it. That I needed to allow the Creator to take up residence and be my source rather than me. That I needed to let go of the limb that I had attached myself to and trust that He would catch me. To trust that He is good. To trust that He is who He says He is and that I am who He says I am. And that was, uh, whew, that's a game changer. Game changer. It, it, I'd always use my will to control my environment, manipulate my environment, to learn more, to strategize, to appear to be this, to appear to be that, to have the right car, to live in the decent neighborhood, to wear decent clothes until I gave up on that, as some of you know. Uh, it was all about trying to navigate these metrics of success that we have created. And what really blew me away is I began to run into people who could not play the games of success as we've created them, but they were fully alive. They were fully alive. They were on fire with this thing, the Spirit of God. And I, I, uh, I feel like in surrendering, the person I was always meant to be is the one who has come out to play. And we all have that person, and that person is either constrained by our beliefs or that person is released by our beliefs, and our beliefs come from our identity. And so my identity is no longer in the things that I've accomplished or the things that I've done. It's in who he says I already am. It it is finished. Three greatest words ever spoken, ever. It is finished. All that needed to take place for you and I to walk in freedom has taken place. It's a matter of receiving it. 
and getting off the throne of our own lives and turning it back and being reconnected to the tree of life, the source. And so our will, the purpose, the number one purpose of my will and your will is to intentionally, on purpose, surrender. That, that's the number one purpose of our will. And our design, your design, my design, is to actually carry the nature of God everywhere we go. To, to actually look like, to emanate Jesus to a world that's dead and dying and dark. Not to imitate, but to emanate. That he comes through us, to us, through us, to the world. It is our design. And, and that's, I feel like that's what's happened to me. I've gotten a, a, a software up, update, like I got a new, is that a good way to say it? Like a, like a, new, a, a new download, not a patch for a bug, but like a whole new operating system. And, and the new operating system, the new man is rewiring the flesh that had been wired for so long by the old man. And I would just invite you to consider I would invite you to consider letting go of the branch in the wrong tree and trusting that he's a good father. He'll catch you. He'll lean into you. He'll, he'll grab you with his loving arms and his really, really good heart. And he will prove to you um, how good he is. And then you'll know who you are and begin to walk in, in power, authority, and identity. And this is a safe place to do it. So thank you guys. Joy, a joy to watch what God's done in Mike's life. I'm gonna read one last passage and uh, I'll go ahead and invite our, our ministry team forward. I want to read this to you out of Romans 6, starting in verse 3. It says, have you forgotten that all of us who were immersed into union with Jesus, the anointed one, were immersed into union with his death? By sharing in his death, our baptism means that we were co-buried with him so that when the Father's glory raised Christ from the dead, we were also raised with him. We have been co-resurrected with him so that we could be empowered to walk in the freshness of new life. For since we are permanently engrafted into him to experience a death like his, then we are permanently grafted into him to experience a resurrection like his and the new life that it imparts. Amen. I believe that the greatest proof of the resurrection of Jesus is the new life that he imparts. I believe this morning that God, as you heard their stories, that God's probably been speaking to your heart. Maybe you're trapped in the ruts of religion or maybe you've just been going your own way and you don't know Jesus. But I believe for some of you, your hearts are burning like that couple on the road to Emmaus and that God is drawing you to him. Maybe. You've known Jesus, but you would just be honest to say that that passion, that flame has died. And I believe that God would want to put that back in to your life, back in to your heart, that 
Today is a good day, as Mike said, to surrender and receive. Would you stand? Ministry team, you can come forward. This morning, if you're just in a place where, where you want that fresh life, maybe you're stuck in the ruts of religion, you've been in church for a long time, maybe you've never known God and are recognizing he wants to know you, then I'd love for these folks to get to pray with you. But go ahead and why don't we all put our hands on our hearts. Jesus, we, we want you. We don't simply want you in our heads. We want you in our hearts. We want that flame of passion to burn in our hearts, that we would know you, that we would walk with you, that we would be made new, that we would experience the freshness of life. So Lord, I pray for each of us here that you would do that in our hearts fresh today. This morning, if you're in a place where you would say, I just need to give my life to Jesus, I need to surrender and receive, would you just raise your hand if that's you this morning and you're just like, I just need to give up, I need to surrender, I need to go all in with Jesus. I see one, awesome two, way to go. Thank you, Jesus. Three, come on. There's probably more. If you did that, if you raised your hand, I'd like to invite you just to be courageous enough to, to come forward and let one of these folks pray with you. We've got a Bible for you. And then I just want you to come forward also. If you're just, if you're just stuck, if you just need to get unstuck from that place of religion and give your life to Jesus. You just want that new life that Mike was talking about. Then this team would love to pray with you. But if you had your hand up, I just encourage you. I know there are a few more just to come forward and just surrender your life to Jesus. It'll be worth it. It'll be worth it. And finally, if you're just in a place this morning where you're just struggling, you just need somebody to agree with you in prayer, maybe you're experiencing sickness in your body, maybe hopelessness in your mind, and you just need somebody just to come alongside you and pray. I, I would invite you to receive prayer this morning. Our team would love to pray with you. I was talking with a girl this week who just a few weeks ago, after struggling for a long time with heart issues, like physical heart issues, she was here with us and she said it was like God just came and scooped out all of the pain, all the stuff that she was dealing with physically, and she has not struggled with any of that stuff since then. And I believe that God would love to, to heal you this morning. Let's worship.